Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who regularly tries to poison his friends and enemies with regular household baking goods. I am the Adam Glass, and it really, you know, baking soda and milk, usually you can get away with, right? I no mean, one. They would, die. Would that taste no like one. something? I I kept watching. I, mean, I was like, almost certainly. This feels like this would taste like something. Yeah, um, not good. But really, really, where it, where it breaks down, I think I've had less luck with putting like raw eggs in whiskey. That usually hasn't gotten the results. <laughs> hasn't I need. killed anybody. Hasn't killed anyone, and they're pretty. I mean, I feel like you could make somebody pretty what's sick going with that. on. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the whiskey might curdle the eggs, right? <laughs> I mean, angry I don't know. more than sick is right. Okay, is really where it's at. <laughs> like, what is uh, this garbage you gave me? Yeah. Why are you my bartender? You're all like, Stop oh, this. it's a cocktail. You know, you put egg whites as a thickener. It's pretty classic. Uh, and then so you're making whiskey mayonnaise you, at that point, basically. You, you're halfway you to use, whiskey mayonnaise. Yeah, you don't use the the yolk in a cocktail, and also traditionally you would you would mix that, uh, not just crack an egg. Oh, you just plop it down in the in the, the bottom. Whiskey. I got you. Yeah, you stir it a little bit, but like, you know, just to gel it. <laughs> this is, what you've described is in a horrifying image. Like I'm, I'm just picturing what's going on here, and I'm like, "This is a nightmare." Like if somebody handed that to me, I don't. I guess if I had just gotten done running up a bunch of steps in Philadelphia, I might be up for it or something. But Before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Uh, if you want to support us, if you can afford to support us right now, and we certainly understand if you can't on a regular basis, let alone on uh, on the current world crisis. Yes, yeah. Uh, uh, but if you do, if you do have an extra dollar and want to send it our way, uh, we are greatly appreciated uh, for we, that dollar. We and, greatly uh, appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> we are greatly appreciative, I said. Okay, I like we're like we're we're greatly we appreciated. Greatly I'm like I I mean I don't know that I can make that statement honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I appreciate you appreciating us, but like, I see, I see. Greatly seems like it's carrying a lot of weight there. <laughs> we greatly of... appreciate it. That's uh, Patreon.com/slash/LostInCriterion. For that dollar, you get access to bonus episodes, non-Criterion films. Uh, have some fun over there. Do some weird stuff, some some terrible stuff, some really good stuff, uh, some stuff that maybe should be in the Criterion Collection, some stuff that absolutely should never be seen. I mean, some stuff anyone. that should be burned. Probably, like, yeah. if I were going to have some sort of media burning thing. Yeah. Personally, <laughs> this stuff would be some of it, I think. Right, right. Uh, you also get to vote on what we're going to watch. I put together a list of films. Uh the movie Kazam is always part of that choice, and they have openly voted for us to watch Kazam at least at least once. Um, I mean, it deserves to be in the Criterion Collection. So it is. It is a classic film uh, from the auteur vision of Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, 
I don't even remember who directed. I don't <laughs> either. I was like, yeah. is he going to name the director? And I was like, that's yeah. that's a hell of a pool. Does he have that on tap? Uh, but yeah. <laughs> if I had it open in front of me, I'd have it on tap. But it's not something I actually I'm looking remember. it up right now. But as it turns <laughs> out, you can't just type the word Kazam in and have it do anything on the internet. Uh, film. Well, yeah. You, you search for Kazam, you get 100 articles on the Mandela effect. And... Uh, no, you just get a bunch of weird internet products named Kazam. <laughs> Which, there you go. Um, let's see here. Directed by Paul Michael Glaser. Glaser. Yeah. Sorry. That's probably a guy. It seems like it. He seems, I mean, he has a picture. That's 50% <laughs> of being a person. He's probably He's real. not a vampire. We know that. Ah, uh, man. I mean, he, he made some movies. Oh, yeah, he directed The Running Man. Uh, yeah, and let's see here. Uh, it's pretty much Fiddler on the Roof. He did not direct. Seventy-one. He did not direct Fiddler on the Roof. I don't know how he was involved with Fiddler on the Roof. He I directed. Name oh, he was an actor. Well. He's an actor yeah. in Fiddler on the Roof. There you go. No, I was. Yeah. I'm getting confused because they they mix Fiddler them together the in the filmography section. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> So Kazam is always a choice, and uh, if you want to vote for Kazam and make the, make our monthly Kazam cast happen, you can uh, for just a dollar a month. For a little, I, above I'm surprised that, you have it, frankly. Yeah, for a little above that five dollars a month, we like to thank those people on air. Uh, thank you so much to Christopher Otto and to Adam Speakerman for your continued five dollars support. Uh, and a little above that, Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I got that printed up on a postcard. And I mail that off with a thank you note, handwritten by me. And you can almost read my handwriting sometimes. So, like, it's and sometimes special. the image on the front is not painful to look at. <laughs> sometimes, often, uh, I'd say often. Uh, but we also like to 50, thank the 50. people at that level on air. Thank you to Jason Westhaver and Michael McGrath for your continued ten dollar and above supports. Yes, thank uh, you. Very grateful. Very grateful for that. So this week. Uh, we are talking about Cria Cuervos. It is a 1976 film directed by Carlos Suara. Uh, this is our only Carlos Suara film in the collection, uh, though this movie very much plays with similar themes uh, and stars the same child actress as uh, the Spirit of the Beehive, which we watched, oh, is that uh, the same person? Ago. I didn't. I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah, Anna here is uh, is actually fresh off of. Uh, it it feels upsettingly similar. Yeah, yeah. Spirit of the Beehive was 1973, and this was uh, this was released in 1976. So, but yeah, Anna Torrance uh, plays a character named Anna in both because she was a child, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you're not not necessarily to the point where you can. Start calling her a different name and have her pay. And have her to what's actually going get on. through that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not that she's a bad actress in any sort of way. No, but, she is a good. Well, considering that in both movies, that she... what they want her to do is essentially stare blankly at right, people. Right. Like, I mean, it's she's good at it. I mean, like she. It's not to undermine what she's doing here. She's doing a good job. And, Absolutely. And it is. It gets across exactly the right emotion for the movies. It's just that, like. In terms of demand from her, it doesn't seem like they're asking her to like, right? Go like really out on a limb in terms of like what they want her to emote. 
Right. Right. Uh, this one maybe has a little more acting even than the last I would, one. Yeah, that makes, I think so. But even then, yeah. like, it's still fair. I mean, there are more dramatic outburst scenes in this movie than there are in, in right. Spirit of the Beehive, which might have zero. Yeah. So, so having, uh, you know, obviously released three years after Spirit of the Beehive, this is similarly in the dying days of Franco Spain. Uh, in fact, the very dying days, Franco died just after. Which is literal. I mean, it's a literal thing, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, and so literal, uh, in that uh, Franco dies, I think, just after this movie comes out. And by 1978, Spain's having its first democratic elections in half a century. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's the dying days of a political structure, too. Not to say the political structure probably changed a lot. We'd have to talk to some Spaniards about that. But at well, least it's I mean, not you would assume at least a little anymore. bit. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, if a movie, I mean, this movie is not. I mean, this movie is not specifically critical of fascists, uh, in, in a way that would have like gotten anybody. I don't know. I wonder could this movie have been made under under the fascist regime, like directly, like in its height? It's Probably not... not, and for a few reasons, and that's okay. actually an interesting backstory on here. Uh, Carlos Suara at this point was one of the few, if not the only Spanish director to have made it through the gauntlet of fascist uh, uh, censorship uh, enough to have an oeuvre. Uh, so to okay. speak, this is his 10th film, right? Oh, wow. Okay. <clears throat> so that makes him one of one of the few Spanish directors at the time with a career. Uh, right, and that gives him certain power. Right, the fact that he's internationally recognized gives him certain power. The fact that he at this time is, I believe, dating, uh, if not married to. I could be real wrong on this. Uh, no, he is in a relationship from 1967 until 1979 with Geraldine Chaplin who plays the mother-slash-older version of Anna in this movie. Geraldine Chap- Chaplin is Charlie Chaplin's daughter. Okay. They've got money. Right. They are well-insulated from fascist uh, right. okay. criticism at this point, right? And it would Insulated, be, probably not invincible, but insulated. Not invincible, but it would be... A, the optics of censoring him at this point would be terrible, and also he right. has the money to fight it. Right. I mean, yeah, he has the money to. I mean, theoretically, probably has the money to just leave. up and leave and start making his films elsewhere, which right. are right. You know, yeah, and which as, is, a, as we, is a fear. Yeah, as yeah. I believe we've talked about in the past, and maybe with the spirit of the beehive too, uh, within autocratic regimes, there is a tendency for art to still have a uh, veneer of freedom, right? Because you need need art in order to market yourself on an international stage. Right. And when you, when you find it in society, when you, when we look at the autocratic regimes that don't have really any artistic output, 
to speak of sort of outward, they're the ones that get like sort of the most attention, right? Internationally, right. it's the it's you know, it is your sort of North Koreas and things like that that are really not that that get all the attention because they're not outputting anything that the sort of outside media can grasp onto, right? Right. Right. So so there is there is also within a realm there is an encouragement of artistic freedom, right? And you know, earliest earliest Franco, you're still in the time of Dolly, and Dolly was was a supporter of of the uh, fascist regime. Well, yeah, um, there's we we can never forget the 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 willing participants in the right. in the artistic uh right, uh sort of scene, but, right? But eventually you you do that trade-off math. You say what you can say. And even Ozu did this under the US occupation too, right? Yeah. You know, you say what you can say, but you temper it enough that they're still going to let it out. Right. Well, uh, we we see that even even within nominally free societies, right? Oh, yeah. Like like <laughs> right. There's you know, uh, censorship being a thing that exists even in the sort of most yeah. You know, sort of the most air quotes American Britain through the 30s and 40s and 50s. And, but, and sending, even now, in yeah. in its own special way, right? Like it's a, right. it functions differently. But there are things that you couldn't. There have been things that you couldn't say essentially in movies for, and I'm not and I'm not going with this garbage like politically correct argument type stuff. I'm talking about like yeah. there there was a long period of time where, and even now we're like making a movie that's like. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, I can't think. I, words uh, that is um, obviously like very directly sort of anti-American military is just right. right. Impossible. Critical of the U.S. Even military. to this day, you, make, you, you can be make. critical of war, but you cannot yeah. be critical of the American military. For you post, will not post September yeah. 11, 2001. You cannot make a film critical of the American military. Uh, and have it released, particularly because the American military has been so integrated into the American film production uh, apparatus that you cannot have realistic portrayals of the Army, right. Navy, Air Force. You can't even get the stock footage right. without agreeing to not portray them negatively, right? So. Right, exactly. Like yeah. you, you, you always have to temper that with being like with making a a, a fairly bullshit point about the sort of ah, oh, well, you know, it's 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 the war, it's the, the it's them, it's them, their people in Washington that are doing this kind of thing, and that's the probably the best you can get away with, and even that right. seems pretty hard. Um, I mean, so. let's let's focus on America. Think of the last movie you can that was critical of American military. I I legit like like movies. Every so often, I start thinking about it. This thing is as is a topic that I spend some mental time on fairly often, and it gets really complicated, right? Because you get you do occasionally get the sort of goofball commanders and things like that, but even when you start start thinking about like critical of the American military fundamentally, like as a concept for yeah. existing. I can't actually think of one. We could think of maybe things that are critical. Like Vice came out recently, a couple mm -hmm. years ago, 
and that's critical of the Bush administration and the response to to nine eleven. Right, but think about what that means, right? Like that's yeah. I mean that's about the well, first of all, you within that 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 sort of like death pact that America has with its military, right. you're allowed to be critical of politicians in Washington yes. and their decisions of how they deploy the military. You are allowed to do that. The military is apparently fine with that. Yeah. Uh, assuming enough time has been given since the that event, right? Uh, you're They're, allowed to be critical of choices regarding the Vietnam War and, and various other wars yeah. that America has been involved in. They're but what I'm talking about is like being critical of the very existence of the thing. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of War Inc. The John Cusack sort of satire of uh, I've not of, seen that. Uh, Military contractism and the people but who sell war. Again, uh, that's not yeah. the military, right? Like, right. it's always something tangentially related to the military because the in very in very much in America is sort of the the actual religion of America. Yeah, the public religion of America. the The right. military itself is sacred. Right. I I I I was having a really weird day the other day. I, I this is. Borderline unrelated to what we're talking about, but I'm going to roll with it because fuck it. Um, and I had two kind of back-to-back events. One was, I, I think one of them obviously involved Twitter or, or the internet in some way. Oh, no, I remember what it was. Oh, now I remember. Oh, yeah, I remember what it was. I was watching Top Chef because that's a thing I do with my free time. <laughs> uh, not the current season, but an old season. Whenever a new season rolls up, I watch the old seasons. I enjoy it. Uh, but it also applies to things like MasterChef or something like that, one of those other TV cooking reality shows that I waste my time on. Um, and they all have an obligatory episode at least once in their history, but usually once, almost once per season, where they cook for the American military. Yeah. And they always get a lot of t- – in order to get that privilege – I'm fairly certain you have to have a bunch of talking heads talk about what it means to them to cook for the American military. Like uh, the various chefs are are put in a position where they talk about how much they love the American military and how and all that sort of stuff. That's a thing that happens in every one of these things. Oh, this is so meaningful to me. Some of them share stories related to their their personal past and their family members who served or whatever like that. Or like they or it'll just be a bunch if they don't have any. A bunch of them will just be like, oh, you know, this is it's an honor. This is a privilege. It's something I've always wanted to do. And and un, always it is guaranteed that one of them will say protecting, you know, protecting us and like yeah. keeping us, us safe. And a thing that goes through my head and this this might get our podcast canceled, I guess, <laughs> is protecting us from what exactly? Like it's never we never. We never, ever in the sort of America public religion are required to finish the sentence, to ever to play out the idea to its conclusion, which is protecting us from who? Protecting us from what? And the reason we aren't ever required to finish that sentence is because there's nowhere that sentence goes where you don't sound like a lunatic. Because... Does the American military protect us from, like, we're not we're not engaged in a, a usually, not engaged in a shooting war that will result in us being invaded, right? 
which you could argue is an actual protecting American citizen. <laughs> They're not following American tourists around because American tourists die all the time, and America seems to not really give much of a fuck. Like, it's 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 this sort of nebulous concept that if there weren't a military barrier between America, air quotes, and the world, that we would be overrun by, I guess, savages? It's always very unclear, but it's yeah. got it, it's it's a it's a thing you just have that has to be said all the time. <laughs> and, and yeah, right. and, and a similar event happened with the Japanese Self Defense Force and and somebody I know the other day and, I, and like a Japanese person I know the other day and I was like, from what for real from what? Yeah, like what are you even saying right now? <laughs> like Godzilla. I guess so. I mean, honestly, in some ways, the Japanese guy has more claim in the sense that we are right fucking next door to North Korea. Right. Like, right. we would not be the first stop. Let's be very clear here. Um, at least at least Japan is set up as an actual defense force. Right. It is as an actual defense force. Some powers want to change that. They do want to change uh, it. But right. it is a defense force. And, and legitimately, their job is generally pointed at, hey... Let's try to shoot down any missiles that might be aimed at us. Yeah. But, uh, but that, nonetheless, I still had to think to myself, protecting right. us from who and from what? Like, who are these people that you are convinced would overrun us in a heartbeat if we didn't have this literally the largest like hit military in the history of the world? Right. So, so all that to say that there are just as... <laughs> In the U.S. today, and in other other Western countries today, there are there are taboo subjects too, that uh, that one cannot openly make a film about without facing backlash. Right, right. Um, so anyway, <laughs> well, uh, well, that was a hell of a tangent. I forgot yeah. what we were talking yeah. about. <laughs> Creole Cuervos, <laughs> yeah, the movie we watched. Yeah, Suara. I mean, like, of course, he couldn't say anything right. he wanted. We right. we we know that. But he can he can sort of subtly say a lot of things, and this is a movie about the trauma inflicted on children, on women, uh, on uh, Spain's future memory of uh, of what fascism has has done and led to. Right, in much the same way, Beehive was about the trauma on children, uh, right, but from a from a different area. Whereas Beehive was the, uh, Anna played the child of someone who ambiguously uh, fought in resistance. Uh, right. Whereas here, her, uh, the father who dies, is a uh, member of the fascist military, right? Other, uh, right. other fascists it, parade through. Like, every man we meet is a, is fascist. a member of yeah. the fascist military. I mean, the, the movie literally talks about the the father and his work fighting alongside the Nazis, which it's, it's really interesting because you do, I do find myself wondering because this does that mean the same thing to the Spanish audience that it means to us? I think it means the the same thing to enough people. Right. That's a more, it's a confusing topic in that way for me. Right. Not being, I'm not I'm not intimately familiar or even passively familiar with uh Francoist propaganda as it related to Nazis. 
So I don't know. I don't know if the Francoists were continuing into the 70s to say, ah, the Nazis were fine. I, I assume they <laughs> had to turn the bend a little bit just because you to a certain extent, you got to go a little bit alongside the uh, the prevailing winds. Right. Like to be the only country like, oh, no, no, the Nazis were great. Like in the whole world, right? Is is a tough. Well, not the whole world. <laughs> well, in a, in a majority, so there was, of the world. In a, in a very there was large Idi Amin as well, and, and some other, some yeah, others. True, but, uh, but yeah, uh, and again, I don't know. I don't know if Idi Amin was uh, was even cognizant of necessarily the point he was trying to make. I don't know that he. Like that. That. I, why was I thinking about him today, though? I, I was no thinking about that. him. Uh, because you watch the president of the United States do anything. Uh, that's true. I, that's true. But there was a specific statement that I was like, "Oh shit, I've been there." But I've I, I've seen this movie already, guys. I think about the cabinet scene from Idiomine Dada. Oh, I remember uh, when it was, it was doctors. I oh god, this is this is a tangent we can save for like later. And the fact that doctors are the only person people he couldn't fuck with, right? And I started thinking about the Japanese cabinet or the Japanese uh, diet and stuff, and like yeah. the fact that like. Nobody wants to fuck with the doctors, really. <laughs> Which is good. Um, yeah. Uh, people fuck. People fucking trust their doctors. Let's well, be serious as here. Out, as it turns out, in America, you can always find a doctor who's uh, who's got a price tag on them. That's <laughs> true. Uh, I, what I mean is, like, to people, say the thing you want. Yeah, them to that's say. true. Yeah. <laughs> which which is not is true outside of America too. I'm sure, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but certainly something I'm dealing with right now. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but yeah, this movie deals with the the sort of ghosts of fascism by having its, I guess, well, I mean, arguably the entire film is flashback because we have the flash forwards of the adult Anna talking to us from nineteen ninety five. Right, but she is she is in theory relaying the story to us. It is yeah. it is all flashback in the sense that like. We're in the present with her, theoretically. Yeah. Uh, it, Even though we're not introduced to her in the present <laughs> until, no. like, 25 minutes No, in. I mean, that's not necessary. We don't. Yeah. doesn't matter. But, like... But still. Yeah, no, I... I yeah, but for... Yeah, you're you're definitely right. But, like, the, the thing about... An interesting thing about the sort of ghost of fascism here is that in the one... One of the more subtle things is that all the fascists we meet just are portrayed as kind of being just pompous assholes, right? Like, right. And like, it's a fascinating thing to watch, right? Because you're, you're just watching a bunch of guys, like most of them have no effect on the movie at all. Right. Like most of them are just dudes in uniform as extras, essentially with no lines. Right. But the few we interact with are just kind of like dudes walking around, just doing fucking whatever. But like, kind of just being a pain like you know what i mean like there's the there's the dude who's chasing after the aunt right and there's the father and the father you know is portrayed pretty extensively negatively um yeah and all around <laughs> yeah i mean he's a bad guy like we we yeah. like and i like how like at least for us as as us as being an audience is like this like just to salt, like pepper it up a little bit more like oh yeah he fought with the nazis you know it's like we just right. really need to make sure you understand right. this asshole here. Um, 
But then the other guy, you know, is just like he just seems like a just a like a he seems a, like a slime ball the first time we interact with him. Right? Exactly. And he's just a he's just a slime ball in a uniform just like right. you I you know, I don't know if his uniform is a, necessarily technically a part of it, but he's always wearing it, so they're always trying to like make sure that you know, right? Like right. when you when your characters never change out of their uniform, that means something. No, I uh, suppose in a movie. I suppose to, to be fair to his women womanizing, his wife is having an affair with the dad, so <laughs> but not a, not exactly a a, a well uh, well maintained well, marriage relationship. I mean, I to be honest, you, what, what you're really starting to think to yourself is like, I mean, they could have sorted this shit out, actually, <laughs> right? Probably. Like, if everybody's just having an affair with everybody else, I mean, like, let's yeah. just everybody let's have a brief conversation. Over, yeah. Fixed. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the dad, the dad's a womanizer who also, you know, trampled the dreams of his wife. Uh, who has her own neuroses and then denies her sickness. And it's not, I mean, this is, this is a movie broadly about trauma. It is not necessarily explicitly the ghosts of uh, fascism, but it's also the ghosts of patriarchy. And right. In the same, but, well, but, but those, those are intrinsically right? linked here <laughs> yeah. too, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that before. Like, you, there, is no, there is no non-patriarchal fascism, essentially. Right, uh, that we have ever experienced in this world, but, um, yeah. Listen, I don't want to close the door on any women. No, uh, I don't want to either. I, and that's why I said that and, we've experienced and to be fair, thus far. Thatcher came in this pretty, world. pretty dang close. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, but I, you know, uh, we we don't want to we don't want to dig into whether that was still the patriarchy or not, right? Like, <laughs> right, right. Like we don't we don't we do not have time for that. I already went on a fucking ten minute anti military <laughs> scree. That's okay. I'll cut most one. of that ten minutes out if you if you go on a Thatcher rant right now. Okay. <laughs> well, well, wait. You're just gonna. You're just like you gotta pick and choose, Pat. You can't have a Thatcher <laughs> rant and a military rant in one episode. Okay. Um, I I personally do not know enough about Thatcher other than like just being like just knowing that I don't want to know much more about Thatcher <laughs> right, than I right. do. Um. So like, no. What I was gonna say that the thing about it is, is uh, Spear the Beehive is uh, is a lot more explicitly about the trauma caused by fascism, right? Like, it just is. Right. This is, as you pointed out, more about the trauma, I would say, arguably about the trauma caused by the patriarchy. But it kind of extends beyond that, right? Because you get into this weird place, right? Because the mom is, you know, she blames her dad and then, like, is kind of trying to deal with the fact about whether or not she ought to blame her dad for her belief that, he he essentially killed her which like you know there's the movie tries to be sort of like subtle about that and you know he didn't murder her but you know he locked her in a house and then ignored her cries for help right um but the thing about it is that the other sort of flip side of that that you had to think about is like this is a woman who's married to a fascist and what I mean to say about that is the fact that she openly dis- she I, we don't know the the circumstances, but the way it's described in the movie is she fell in love with and married a a fascist, which we would normally in modern in the modern day say that like if you're married to a fascist, you are a fascist sympathizer, right? 
yes and and no i'd say certainly certainly true to uh the 70s as a period um the assumption that the wife reflects the politics of the husband uh may play out in that if they live in a country where voting is a thing the the husband probably controls the uh the vote of the wife anyway um but uh that sort of removes the political agency of the women here well, too and i feel no, right i feel what like I'm... she has a political agency and i feel like living in franco spain there is also a I mean, did she fall in love, or did well, he pursue her to a point? We don't know enough about the relationship. We don't know that it, it, that is true. She did knowingly marry a a That's guy in the I'm fascist saying. military. Like there is that. She that the, my the point I'm trying to make is not with regards to anything kind of like necessarily a judgment of her now or so, you know more contemporarily in the movie or something like that. But and we don't know the truth, right? We we never really know the truth in this movie, right? We're getting various accounts and recollections which get you know adjusted by the different people who are talking about them like her sister talks about her differently and tries to deny yeah. um that you know like that she was unhappy and that he was you know cheating on her and things like that but like beyond that though like we just get into this weird thing where like and this is a thing we have had to deal with in the in like the very modern era right like if you are married if you are married to an continue to be married to a person who is demonstrably a part of evil what what does that make you what are you i'm not i'm not saying that she talking about him controlling her politics or something like that i'm saying like legitimately like he was a fascist when she married him yeah but also she lives within that system right i under i understand that but like Yes. And living within the system, you can be blinded to the outsides I, of the system. I, I agree that that's true, but we have also we have also harangued people for making the argument that the people of Nazi Germany didn't know better. Right. You right. know what I mean? I'm like, not... just you know, there were people who were anti-fascist in Spain. Right. And there were and people she of married her time. a fascist. Yes, you know what I mean? that's fair. However, <laughs> like, what I what I. Just say, I'm not. I'm not saying it'd be one thing if she, if she, uh, willingly uh, allowed a uh, genocide to happen, uh, but she married a guy, and I think there's there, there's a moral difference. No, no, between I, saying, yeah. Say, I'm not trying to say that she deserves to be Germans, like the Germans didn't know any better, and saying uh, <laughs> she married right. a fascist. <laughs> I, I understand that. My, my like my point is just that like it puts us. I think not necessarily intentionally for the movie, but mm. it does put us in a in us being the people who are watching the movie now yeah. and here in a weird position in the sense that like we have to say like like I it doesn't it doesn't reduce her pain or anything like that or in what she went through, mm-hmm. but it it does put us in a position of saying like well like who are the victims of fascism in this movie? except for we've talked in the past about the fact that the fascists themselves are also sort of a victim of right. fascism, right? Uh, and she is one, but she is also a part of that. So it it just complicates matters, right? Because she can be both a member, a participant, and a victim at the same time. Right. 
and that's what she actually is. She. I don't want to. My my point was that I didn't want to get out, walk down the road of just talking about her as a sort of victim of this fascism without also acknowledging the fact that she is also a participant in it, like in a very real way, rather than just sort of being a citizen in this the place, right? Like, right. But again, we don't know the whole story, right? Like, she may have been forced into the marriage, but then again, this is a fiction story. So, if you wanted to say she was forced in the marriage, you had to like indicate that. Yeah, but you can't Harry Potter this shit and say it like not say it and then be like five years later be like, well, actually, well, let's let's talk about her motives then. She's a concert pianist who is promising, right? And in the same way as the conversation we've already had about Suara himself, uh giving a little to the regime is what gives you the freedom to have an artistic career. Right. Okay. So maybe she marries him, hoping that that will lead to opportunities to go abroad. uh, And then he shuts that down, but she's already trapped. I mean, that's definitely a possibility. Uh, you, You would have to indicate that somewhere in your storytelling. I don't, for that to be a thing you I don't know if in 1976 like, uh Spain you necessarily needed to indicate that in your storytelling and it wasn't just an implied nature of the relationship. So you don't but, think anybody in Spain well okay. So I if you, if the argument is is that she married him so that she could get the ability to travel abroad and perform abroad I can see it but that's still a I mean that your cultural perceptions are doing a lot of heavy lifting I don't, as, a, listen, as an I, audience I don't, member. I'm not trying to say that those were explicitly her motivations. I'm saying that there are there are motivations for that marriage that weren't just, I will ignore everything terrible this man has done because I'm in love with him or something. Right, she, but okay. Let's, she let's, might let's... be doing her own mental calculus on this. All right, and and I and I agree, but in that that is definitely possible. We never, but we also, never talk to her directly, right? Right, we don't. Which is, but that that makes things more complicated in the sense and that we're like, filtered through an eight year old's memories of her, right? So, that, but that complicates the process in both directions. Right. Our suppositions in oh, both absolutely. directions are complicated, not just in one. Uh, but the other thing that we have to ask is if if our if the director is trying to if the director is trying to form that comparison is that not also in and of itself a a, like that is also a thing worth discussing is that capitulation to achieve some sort of artistic freedom is a is a topic of debate as well right whether or not that's a viable thing to do right like whether or not like especially like the more sort of the escalation of that the regime that you're capitulating to is the darker and scarier the argument well i had to give a little bit to be able to make my art becomes right when i'm this you know this includes Sora himself in all of this what i what i'm saying is our, our conversation about authority eh, authoritative regimes authoritarian regimes uh encouraging art as a a means of publicity. Uh, Franco was maybe not super good at it, but but good enough at it that 
he was a fascist dictatorship that lasted post-World War II, right? Right. So uh, they were insulated enough from an amount of outside criticism. Uh, sort of lost my train of thought. I apologize. Uh, but but with, with Suarez, Suarez is obviously doing this, right? He is still living in Spain. He's not uh, like uh, Fritz Lang in Germany fleeing right right you know but he's also not like fritz lang in germany in that franco never personally came to him and said hey i want you to run spanish (laughs) spanish film um uh right right but but... like (laughs) you you have to to like it just it's all it is very complicated it's just you know you're left with a lot of questions when an artist doesn't true choose to flee a fascist regime, right? Someone Rather, and Suara maybe even has the money to flee, right? That's what I'm saying. Especially once you have the ability to, it gets even more becomes even more of a questionable choice, right? But your, I think there's a there's an idealistical view that you are abandoning your people too, right? Yeah, Suara, I, Suara yeah, it's staying, not black and white. Yeah, Suara staying and continue to make movies like this. Or Pasolini staying in Italy and continuing to make the movies he's making that are really explicitly about Italian politics uh, in a time where Italian politics aren't openly fascist, but his fear is that they would become fascist again. Well, yeah, but that, right? that fundamentally becomes a different thing, right? It is a different thing, but, but I also – what I mean by that – or Waja putting the explicit Marxist argument – uh, in a Soviet era film, well, right. but yeah, Waja right. also can't flee. <laughs> like, it's fundamentally, flee. fundamentally maybe, impossible. Actually, maybe Suara can't flee. Um, it's all, yeah, that's totally possible. I, I, I understand that, and that's why I said it's I not just, black and white. I just think that that staying and producing art as a means to move against the regime is legitimate. But again, it takes some surface level giving up of freedom in order to do that. And it's a give and take with the regime. Um, you can't. The, yeah, and you've got to you've got to be working for, you know, 30 right, years but, uh, before you get yeah, to and, the point and, where and you I can don't know that, be super I, open. I, I don't know that you. I am not sure that the argument holds up that you that that has any potentiality for being effective, right? Like you know what I mean. Like I understand it if you can't flee. Like I get that there. We we have encountered we have encountered multiple artists since we've started this podcast who fundamentally cannot flee. Their ability to leave that scenario is zero, right? Uh, especially when we're talking about Soviet era artists just being basically fundamentally trapped in the Soviet film ecosystem, right? Yeah. There is no escape. But, and I don't know what Sara, uh, what Sara's, like, situation is. Uh, One would think that being married to, or dating the daughter of Charlie Chaplin would have some effect on that. Right. Uh, uh, If I'm being honest, I'm guessing he left the country at some point. Um, But, what I mean is that uh, it gets it just it gets a little fraught in the sense that like you you start coming back to these weird arguments that we get further back on that you that that we've talked about before where you're like you start talking about various minority groups in the United States like 
where they're constantly we're being constantly told to work within the system, right? To like, oh, well, you just got to get in there and change the system from the inside out, which is a bullshit argument. Yeah, but he's also even even before he's in a relationship with with Chaplin's daughter, he's bourgeois, right? He's comfortable. Yeah. So. And so that's why we get into another thing, which is too. I get a little bit suspicious on just how much of a commentary right. on, like, if you're well off before this starts and you're well off now, how much are you actually commenting on, you know, contemporary uh, Spanish society, really? Because well, you are comfortable. Still, he still has the childhood trauma of living through the war, right? He's under, he was born, I think, 1930, which right. means, or 32, so he's seven when the war happens. Um, right. And the war did not just happen one year. It, it was the war right, ended in right. 39, right? Uh, assuming assuming this film is correct, because I don't know that offhand. But I do remember the line in the film where someone asks, when did the war end? And they say 1939. I, they think. I think. Um, yeah, I think. <laughs> pretty sure that's right. Uh, but uh, let's say... He started making movies in 55 as director. Uh, so, you know, Victor Ice with Spirit of the Beehive is in a very different boat. Like, Spirit of the Beehive is his debut. And he's 33 when that comes out. Um, about 10 years younger than, 8 years younger than uh, than Suara here. Uh, so, you know... Ariche is someone who came out and made a, a film that is subtly critique of fascism, a film that will not explicitly name its main family as uh, anti-fascist, but offers a lot of good clues that they were. Right. Uh, and it's his debut film, and ultimately he does not make a lot more films. <laughs> right. Uh Whereas Suara comes out and makes a lot of films that deal with his personal trauma of living through the war, of bombings and starvation, of of children uh, living through this. Uh, many, from what I can tell, from a more male perspective than than this film, certainly. Uh, but he he lays the framework in order to say something that maybe isn't as overt <laughs> as beehive was. Um, so he's comfortable right. in his career, but, I guess. But I would also argue it's possible to make a movie that is, that talks about, um, and we, we would really, really just need to watch other films by this, by him, by Sarah, yeah. but like, we're just not going to. But um, that is actually true. There's there's no others in the we, we, we really don't have a lot to work with here. But because just because the fascists in this movie are kind of dicks, the, infl- <laughs> the sort of pseudo like are the inflictors of this. Yeah, it, it's it's hard because you're we're also in a world where like some relatively large percentage of the the male population is part of this system it it's really i don't know it it this movie is i like this movie i enjoyed watching it i just found that it it's sort of like arguments with regards to 
you know, the fascist system and things like that seem muddled a little bit to me. Like he yeah. Okay. I have we don't, I have two things I want to say and hopefully I can I can hold this thread enough to say both of them. Okay. Uh, because I think either will lead to another conversation. One, the fact that uh, Chaplin plays Anna's mother and the adult Anna suggests a cyclical nature of this trauma, right? It is right. intergenerational, uh, and and within Franco's Spain, where the the regime lasts uh, multiple generations, right? So so it's already intergenerational just right. by its existence. Um, but but that Spain moving forward uh, will feel the scars of this, uh, and with the with the I guess nineteen ninety five bits and the, the twenty years in the future bits, uh, adult Anna doesn't make any sort of reference to the current political climate of Spain. Um, so I, there's an argument, I suppose, of as to whether or not uh, Anna is foreseeing a future, and uh, future Anna is living in a future that Suara has uh, foreseen to be post, post, uh, post Franco. Like Franco's not dead yet; he's very close to it, but he's not dead yet. Um, and Suara doesn't make explicit. If there's a, uh, Anna doesn't make any comments on politics of her time or or the rest of her life, right? So we don't know if if she had said something about uh, having voted for someone, uh, the implications uh, would maybe be enough to get the movie (laughs) squashed, Um, right? But but also the nature of the um, of the title, Cria Cuervos. If you raise ravens. They'll pluck your eyes out, I think is the the Spanish saying that this title was pulled off of. Uh, It's about bad parenthood explicitly, but but in a broader sense, it's about intergenerational trauma too, right? Uh, Not not just within a family, but within a country, within a society. Uh, If you you raise ravens, they'll... (laughs) if If you don't treat your kids proper, the children proper they'll raise up and overthrow you. So so in that, there is a hope in that title and in the sequel. Well, yeah, but when you get into that saying, when you raise ravens, the implication is that you've also made monsters. Yeah. Well, Which is the, to say that, like, you're when you're talking about that, you're probably digging more into a, a sort of thought process of, a fascist regime will lead to the fact, like, will, you know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's yeah. more of a Stalin sort of scenario where, like, oh, you'll make you, something you, worse. In the yeah, future. you've made a bunch of assholes who will definitely ki- kill you so that they can be the asshole in charge. Yeah. You know what uh, I mean? Like, and so it's possible that, you know, in a very, very subtle way, as far as saying, oh, you know, um, Franco's going to die, but he's going to be replaced with, one of the one of these assholes, <laughs> right? You know what I mean, and that that I can see is a I think is a reasonable way to read this movie. Is it like, and that trauma will just continue, right? Yeah. Like, you know, our you know our main character will end up marrying some other fascist asshole, and he'll yeah. 
treat Perhaps. her poorly and she'll die and and her children will be traumatized and that that argument I think is reasonable to make per- about this movie. Uh, Perhaps that segues Perhaps that segues into the second thing that popped in my head there then uh, is Anna trying to poison the fascistic forces in her life with baking soda, a critique on an ineffectual resistance movement. Right. Who? I mean, yes. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I think that that is probably one of the better arguments in the movie. Uh, but then you then you get to the question of who are the ravens, right? Like that you're raising, right? Well, again, because... I think I think obviously the the idiom is meant as a negative. I I don't know that necessarily here it plays as a negative. Like Anna's Anna's traumatized, right? And and dealing with that trauma, and re- she has repressed that trauma by the time she's an adult, right? She she talks about not being able to remember exactly what what's happened. Right. right. Uh, but I think I think the idea that if you raise like I like I said already to begin with uh, the idea that that you raise you raise a generation in a certain way and they are likely to kill you uh, isn't necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> if 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 the person if the uh, the head of that generation, uh, the person raising them deserves death, uh, the idiom gets flipped on its head. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, I, 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 you know, I mean, that's true. I mean, we like you can, you know, talking about the Spanish proverb, right, is is more about the idea that you're like you did a bad job of raising your kids and now they're paying your ass. Uh, but, you know, it, it. It has the like the problem with this implication is that like that that kind of goes two ways. Right. Because I I. I find it hard to believe the implication is that the parents are responsible for sort of the outcome of their children for like, for the, like when your kids act bad, it's because you were a bad parent, right? Like we're, right. we're literally going to talk about Charlie and the chocolate factory next, which is hilarious, but uh, as a sort of connection there, but the idea that the parents are responsible for the way their children turn out. And so you, you reap what you sow with regards to child rearing. Um, and my my issue is that like when you talk about fascist regimes or something like that, you reap what you sow is a is a slightly different meaning depending on what you know sort of happens next, right? Um, and the baking powder is sort of a kind of a weird, honestly, in this movie, kind of weird non sequitur in and of itself. Uh, like she believes she has power, but she doesn't right uh, and I, but uh, like you know not i i'm probably reading too much into it to say that is any anything about the resistance um uh you know i i think i'm uh, <laughs> i may be reading this as a melville film to say that uh, yeah that's and, what i'm worried about i'm yeah. a little bit worried what, what i've kind of been trying to go with this is that i'm a little bit worried that we're giving this the structure of this movie and everything a little bit more credit than it deserves. Well, not in terms of like how good it is, but how much it is and whether or not it is an anti-fascist film or not. Suara, Suara is regarded as one of the great opponents of Francoism at this point. 
Like, not that's not that is something other people believe. And this is our only interaction with him, so you know we can't necessarily speak to right. uh, whether or not we'd agree with that if we did the research, right? Right, and so we use it, but we so we're left with this film, and then so we have to look at this film and say, like, well, how much do we think this is? I think ultimately the bad. film is maybe too subtle. That's kind of where I was going with this: right. is that like if it is anti-fascist, it it is very very like more subtly than like we've not watched a lot of movies about this you know about spanish society you know during the fascist uh era and and like we've really i think maybe just the two right it's similar Uh, to to things we've said about um anti-war films we've watched where the only anti-war message is really that war causes trauma Uh, right and yeah, fascism causes trauma in the same way war causes trauma. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> right. Uh, and some of those anti-war movies have not gone beyond. And, you know, in being cyclical in the nature of its portrayal of trauma, and, and intergenerational trauma does exist, right? You know, right, not, yeah, absolutely. I'm not arguing it doesn't. Trauma is cyclical uh, in many ways um, without without an outside force acting <laughs> to overcome it. Um, but he's also not making an argument for an active outside force. Uh, so. Right. And and actually what I would say is that in, in a lot of ways where I think it's actually headed is that he's not really making an argument. He's, he's, he is demonstrating a thing that he, he's trying to portray a thing that he sees in the world around him. Right. Like he's talking about the, the sort of this, this interplay between, the one generation and the next and how trauma comes about, but he is not really making an argument about like, there's no statement of purpose. Like he's not, he's not saying like, and this is what ought to happen well, or this is okay. what we should do about it. So Franco died in November 75. This was filmed in the summer and then released in January of 76. So Franco dies between production and release. Franco was not assassinated. He died of natural causes of, of illness, maybe, but, right. but he was on a sick bed for many months. Right. So Franco is dying during production of this. Right. So I think that's important to keep in mind into what what Suara might be trying to say as Franco is dying. You know, our our fascist leader in this movie dies at the beginning of the narrative, right? Right. But his memory continues to traumatize our main character. Right. And, and, and again, the scars are shown. So it's maybe just a a warning of what is to come in that manner. I suppose Uh, that, that, you know, I I think just, just having your, your fascist dad die uh, during an affair and having his eight year old daughter discover him naked and dead in bed and the woman he's having an affair with ran away. Uh, that itself is is a critique, uh, perhaps a surrealist critique or or a uh, a tongue in cheek critique. But it is a critique of fascism to say no one cares when a fascist dies. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I would definitely agree with your fascist dying. I I I I think as saying that this movie <laughs> is a critique of sort of the way 
the the sort of like having the two military officers that we really interact with both be uh womanizers who like just sort of leave a wake of like problems for other people behind them yeah and it is is a reason is reasonable to say that that is a critique of fascism i i and sort of especially sort of this this probably specifically this era of fascism where it's all just about the power they have over other people rather than any sort of real not necessarily super identifiable political ideals you know what i mean like that you see commented on a lot in these kind of movies and that's fair i just i i just think that like it is it feels more like the sort of political commentary you get in something like a film from the UK about how ridiculous the members of the government are rather than a comment on autocratic regimes. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's very light. It feels very, it to a certain extent still feels very gentle. It's obviously not gentle towards Anna. Like that's where, and, and in that way, the trauma is quite intense, but it is also couched in a sort of like not that intense set of scenarios that don't like there's very there's like not any violence or anything like that if that makes sense it's very it it, it almost feels like it's critiquing the fascism of the day and the and the, the that its scars will be how poorly mismanaged things were or something along those lines rather than like a you know a well, then it's sort not, of it's not pushing back against the horrors of fascism so much as it's pushing back against the propaganda of Franco. Yeah, something like that. And I and I think that is a much easier argument to make. It, it what it gets complicated for me is that like <laughs> violent cr- silencing of critics is not a thing that this seems to be talking about. Right. That much. And of course, in seeing in seeing Suarez's life, uh, <laughs> we we have to remember that just because someone is anti-fascist in one instance does not make them uh, a communist. Uh, so. Right, exactly, and that and you know so. it, it's yeah totally, and that's that's kind of where I was trying to go with this is like, and then keep keep in mind though that like in a certain reading, Anna's mother is is the silencing of a critic, right? Like. She's not given any freedom to do what she wants to do with her life. And so you could it, – it's very subtle if that's what it's doing. Uh, so, you know. I I mean, I thought the tonality of the movie and things like that were excellent. I, I enjoyed watching the movie. I thought it was really a, an interesting movie film to watch. and I And I actually enjoyed it. Yeah fairly uh, quite a bit uh i thought it was i i i thought it was really interesting to watch and it gave me a sort of a little bit further insight into hopefully a little bit of insight into spanish society circa this era which we don't get this yeah we don't get to see very often but i think when i start thinking about the politics of it i'm i'm underwhelmed right now as as an exploration of uh the life of women uh and young women in particular at this time uh, you know the relationship between the sisters is is it's great it's yeah wonderful totally um the uh 
the complicated, you know, not not all of these women who we interact with are are one trick ponies themselves, right? You know, they're each they're each complicated. The uh the grandmother who is mute at this point and and wheelchair bound but can't uh just wants to live in the memories of a right uh old pop song and and pictures of her of her marriage uh the uh, the aunt who uh is i don't know uh i don't the aunt of, is the is one of the most confusing characters like not in a bad way she's just what just, are, the layers that make up her are kind of impenetrable i mean on the on the one hand she's sort of had three children thrust upon her life but she doesn't mm-hmm. seem to have had she wasn't like some some social butterfly before, right? <laughs> She's well. It's a, yeah. She seems it, to have it, led a fairly chaste life to begin with, right? And it and and it gets that kind of like her and the grandmother move in, and it gets that feeling of like it kind of gets the impression that maybe they're like trading up. Right? To, has to she has extent. she just been taking care of grandma this entire right? Time? And then and now it seems like well, it, it gets that it has the weird impression that like. Now they've got this house, which is the nice house kind of right. feeling to it. Right now they're in charge of this. Like the way she steps into the role seems a little bit less like the wicked stepmother type of scenario and more like uh like I'm gonna take over this house because it's mine now kind well, of. Well that is the you wicked know, like, stepmother <laughs> scenario. No, no, too, what I mean but... no, what what I mean is like you don't get the impression from the the, the aunt is stricter with the kids to a certain extent. But what I mean is, like, the Wicked Stepmother actively punishes the children, like, for just being the children. Like, I I don't get that impression in this. Like, she doesn't come in and, like, I hate these children. Right. That's not, that's the Wicked Stepmother. The well, wicked she does come in and immediately say, well, uh, at least they kind of look presentable now. And then get into right, the house well, and say, you she's need to a, clean. She's got a stick up her ass, but, yeah. like. But, that is not the same thing as the wicked stepmother. The wicked yeah. stepmother actively hates the children who are the native born children of that 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 stereotype is very specific yeah. about but, that. But hatred. in that in that manner she's the bureaucrat that keeps this Absolutely. situation yeah. going. As a representation of, yeah. of of possibly for fascism and and the sort of society, absolutely. My my point was is that she's it it, it is a representation of like I guess what they're what so I might imagine Spain's going to become, yeah. which is sort of like a walking zombie corpse of the Franco regime, living, where the bureaucrats just step in and just in a huge keep it rolling. House with a yeah, uh, and kind of keep the whole thing and right, sort of running of the remnants of uh, a better class of living, but right, yeah, exactly. Tidy everything up a little bit so that it yeah. runs a little bit smoother. And then just keep the fucking train running, right? Basically, but don't make any changes that are dramatic, like you know, really dramatic. Just mostly just tidying up the joint, kind of thing. And and you can see that. And then there's a good argument for that in here. I, my my point was is that if you read it as an individual person rather than like a representation of a regime or something like that, her it, it appears that her and grandma have sort of traded right. up. To to that extent, uh, in you know, even even describing Suara as uh, anti Franco, 
that that leaves a very broad array. Is he anti-Franco in the same way that uh, uh, you know current Republican politicians might be anti-Trump? You know, it's not it's not that he disagrees necessarily, right? The, and uh, that's what I'm starting to wonder, yeah. right? That's yeah. in my mind where it gets a little hazy. Yeah, obviously he had the trauma, and he would like to not have the trauma, and to 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 get rid of the trauma but but where right. do his politics actually lie is, right and where is, and the trauma is for, if we can't say the trauma is from the war that that's not the same thing as the trauma is from the fascists right like right. that's just not the same thing uh you can be pro-fascist and still be traumatized by the war um i don't think that's necessarily what he is but i'm just saying it's that 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 person exists that person walks the earth yeah That's fair. Um, I I think it's probably safe to say that he is probably. I I think it's safe to say that he is probably anti-Franco regime in the sort of way that like American. I feel like like American directors can be anti a specific current political regime, but aren't like anti the American governmental system kind of feeling you know what i mean the the sort of like i don't think i don't sorry doesn't seem like he's ready to burn the place down yeah or anything like that but again we only have the one movie and i think it, it is it is a critique for sure but then what was the children are watching who directed that italy um Ooh, don't ask me questions like that the children are watching us. It was, uh, oh goodness, I'm getting. Oh yeah, I remember. Oh, I mean, I remember it. Yeah, uh, it's a Disica film from '44. So, is this in that same manner that uh, fascism has made our adults act like this, and now this movie is look at what it's doing to the kids? I think it might be to a little bit. I mean, I think I think you know you've drawn some pretty interesting lines between sort of elements of the political system that might be a little bit harsher than that because that one is very much like like that one. That one's heavy, heavy religious overtones, right? Uh, uh, like moralistic overtones are very so specific, so, yes, but but <laughs> uh, but like I'm trying to separate that out, but like. I think you've made a. I think to me you've made a pretty convincing argument that he is, is anti-fascist in, or anti the Franco regime in in the way that like there there's clear connections between certain types of behavior and and people. I just don't know that he is. It is it is. I would say that the children are watching us is more intensely critique uh, like of a critique maybe. Like the the the, the 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 children are watching us gets very very moralistic like in the sense that like if memory serves it gets very like it wears its critique fairly deep like heavily on its sleeve right um, yeah <laughs> I would say the children are watching us is actually uh, probably more anti woman than the smellness. It, like it is. I mean, I what I'm trying to remember exactly the children are watching. I just remember as 
like sort of gawking at how how high and mighty it's sort yeah. of self-righteous it's moralistic standings or uh, the principal storyline of the children watching us is that uh the mother runs away uh leaving the dad to raise the kid and the dad uh maybe ends up committing suicide i i'm I, it's I, I just i just anyway, remember it's it, been long enough that us yeah. feeling very much like wow this movie got <laughs> it's, upsettingly, it's way more realistic and it's yeah it's, uh and not in a good way, like not yeah. in any way that can be considered right. positive. But right, um, right. No, I, uh, I just I think this movie it, it definitely is is critiquing the current regime. I would definitely agree that that is true. It's just a matter of you know when I watched this, I didn't walk away going like I didn't feel. We watch some films where you're like you walk away from it and you're like you feel this like really intense feeling of like oh yeah. Like, X regime was horrible and tortured people and it was terrible. You know what I mean? We've watched those movies. Uh, yeah. And then this one, you kind of walk around, well, man, those Franco fascists, they seem like a bunch of not great guys. Yeah. Like, who who really weren't very nice to the people around them. Like, and, <laughs> and then I think, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of going in circles here, but. Beehive 2 tells the story of a a much more downtrodden family. They are not underclass. They are not lower class necessarily in that they are they are bourgeois who have really lost a lot, right? Right. Um whereas here they are bourgeois who have lost a bit. And I think Ariche yeah, Ariche studied law, political science, and economics at the University of Madrid, uh, and then decided to go to film school. He was a guy. He was like just that sentence. Uh, that was right. a guy who, had, a who came right. from money, <laughs> right? Um, uh, and and Suara, similarly, we've talked about came from uh, a bourgeois background. His father was a lawyer, um, and. Is there, I guess, but Beehive maybe hits better in that we're talking about impoverished people, uh, whereas here we are talking about bourgeois people, and this is then a film aimed at bourgeois people, of, of people who, who really um, are above you and me. <laughs> as, right, as yeah, as well, exa- yeah, and, and that might be goes. part of the problem in, in a certain extent. Like, the spirit of the Beehive has an ambiance to it as well, yeah, that makes you feel you inside of yourself feel to a certain extent the trauma. Yeah, like the actual ambiance of the film feels somewhat traumatic, right? The, these desolate landscapes of that farm and things like that have this feeling where you you feel like you're a, a, actively a part of being in that trauma, whereas this. It is much more just the story of Anna, and and it doesn't feel the whole ambience of the place feels more like it reminds me of other sort of character studies of children we've watched before that address how parents affect their children and 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 hurt their children. 
in the in the sort of way that the children are portrayed and things like that. Like Anna's is obviously more a little bit more extreme, but like we've watched movies where children are abused in yeah. the, on this show and they don't feel that different from this. Right. Something like Rat Catcher feels. Exactly. And and actually those are more more traumatic in the sense that they they carry more information about the trauma than this movie does. Right. Yeah, that's and, another I, I don't again, you know, I don't think this even, is a bad movie. Even I, rat, I don't. rat Catcher, Rat Catcher is explicitly from a Scottish point of view. Uh, and and any cri- social critique it is making is aimed at a uh, an autocratic British government too, right? Right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, right. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't dislike this movie. I, I right. thought it was it was an interesting watch. I I really enjoy uh, not enjoy enjoy is always a weird word to use, but like. It was fascinating for me to watch, as you mentioned, like life in this time, and especially for the for the the female, you know, the the young girls in this movie and things like that, and learning about their life. and And one would presume that it's fairly accurate, yeah, because it is probably not as accurate as could be because it was written by right a guy, an adult guy, yeah, but- an adult man. <laughs> But it does it, it is in, it does reveal to us things that I have because I don't I know so little about this time in Spain, yeah, and Spain in general really. It's an interesting movie. I yeah. think visually there's some interesting things going on camera wise too. Um, yeah, for sure. Like the way the way uh, Anna and her vision of her mother interact is a uh, shot reverse style, you know, over shoulder. Uh, switch point of view talking from each other whereas the way her and the other adults in her life interact with the exception of uh the maid i think um but the way she and say the aunt interact it's uh wide steady shots of her sort of being talked down to Uh, right so there's that you know that film craft aspect of it that's that's interesting um i don't know I don't want to. It's something we haven't mentioned yet, and and but plays to things we've sort of moved past. Uh, the the fact that the father has seemingly only left them explicitly left them guns, and particular right. guns, <laughs> yeah, uh, is I think another play on on if you raise ravens, right? Right. Yeah. Definitely. It's like, I, I, and I and I would say that that's one of the elements that is that does lean more towards one of the things that can be used as evidence that this is at least some, you know, fairly anti sort of Franco fascist regime is the fact that like, and then once she starts waving it around, everybody's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe <laughs> hand that to me. You know, it's probably yeah, not maybe, loaded. Maybe and don't just walk around with loaded. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. But it also points directly to the other opposite side of that, which is her father was just a lunatic who just left fucking loaded guns everywhere, which is, you know, plays into that same thing, right? Like you just, you know, you build a giant, you know, a big old military full of guns that are loaded and then like don't have a necessarily a plan for what's supposed to happen next with it or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's lots of interesting commentaries like that. Uh, 
but and then you throw in certain things like, oh, well, guns are for boys is one of those things that uh, get said, right? Yeah. Uh, which is a whole other extra layer, right, that is somewhat divorced from the other things that we're talking about. Yeah. Like, as though she's not allowed to participate in this regardless of what it is. And that, you know, we're also dealing with a time in, in Spanish society where, you know, women could open a bank account without their husband. So, right. you know, getting married, getting married actually provides some autonomy, ultimately, right? In in, in a society. Well, yeah, like I that. mean, depending, right? Because, you know, she, we do find that the mother doesn't get basically any autonomy from actually, that. Absolutely marriage. not. Whereas, whereas the other woman, that, one of the other women that we meet, the sort of seems to get a fair amount of autonomy. The the wife of the other <laughs> boy names. I don't even remember anybody's name now. Um, the person he was having an affair with, the father was having an affair with. Yeah, the, I don't know that she's even ever named, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, no, it's oh shit, maybe she's not. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, Amelia, no. Yes, Amelia. Amelia. Yes, that is correct. Uh, she does seem to get a fair amount of autonomy from that, probably because her husband, like, doesn't. You know, it's a, it it's complicated, right? Her but, husband's too busy trying to have sex. Yeah, with all, trying to also have a lot of autonomy, right? Like yeah. it's, uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I think we've we've talk to this out as much as we can talk it out so maybe maybe time to pull it to a close but yeah i like would it, agree like i mean you said, this is um this is a film that is very interesting to watch in a good way uh but but ultimately maybe doesn't uh you know i i always hate to fault something for not saying what i want it to say but i also right. don't know that it's saying anything necessarily important uh right it probably time period maybe it comes out in Right. It might be more important to the people of the time, but like it's even that feels kind of like a stretch, honestly. That yeah. like Spaniards of like 19, whatever it is, 1970, what what year was this again? I don't even 70, remember. Uh, six is when this came Yeah, 76. We're like watching this and like this is certainly not a rallying cry or anything like that, right? So, yeah. Um, and I, you know, that's what probably what I wanted, and that's as you pointed out, not a good thing necessarily. Right, right. But I, I enjoyed watching. I enjoyed watching the movie, so yeah. I, I can't fault it or anything like that. I feel that this is a good companion piece to the spirit of the beehive, if only to show what what a newcomer was able to pull off. Compared to uh, right, a guy who right. who should have been at the peak of his game, <laughs> a couple right? Years like later. probably has the most freedom he of any person right. in this country with regards to art, or a very high amount. Yeah, it, and and makes a thing that is probably less aggressive. Right, right. right. So, yeah. I mean, but Spirit of the Beehive is also pretty laconic too, right? So it's it like, is, well, no, it's a very laconic movie. But I, I, when right. it, with regards to how much you feel the trauma, 
Right. Right. That's I, actually, no, no, that brings to a point. Anna here, as opposed to Spirit of the Beehive, um, and it's an actress named Anna is playing a character named Anna there as well. Right. But, but, but Anna in Spirit of the Beehive, uh, you feel what she's going through a lot more than I right. feel like in this movie. In this movie, it's kind of easy to write her off as a crazy little girl. Uh, but, you know, weird little girls make the world go round. Um, right. Yeah. No, <laughs> if, I, I think it, you know, you've ever I talked think a lot to an eight year old girl about dinosaurs if she's really or whatever she's really into. Um, they're interesting. Right. Interesting conversations. Yeah, I, but I, I would I would argue, though, that some of the cinematography and stuff in Spirit of the Beehive also just does yeah. a better job of conveying that. It's more like, of a visually. There's nothing wrong too. with this cinematography, but like yeah. little kids in a desolate like. Farm field. Right. Where they find a dead body in a building is way more sort of terrifying ambiance <laughs> than than this. It yeah. just is. Are you saying this movie might have been improved if Frankenstein showed up? Is that always. <laughs> there is well, never a situation where Frankenstein showing up to hang out with little girls does not make a scene more terrifying. That might be that might be an interesting segue into our movie next week, uh, which also <laughs> does not deal with Frankenstein, but is uh, it's always a delight when the Criterion Collection shows us a uh, 1960s independent American horror film. Uh, it does it every so often, and they're they're always bewildering and wonderful. Uh, but next week we're talking about 1964's Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Uh, and yeah, I this week, am so excited. This I week, mean, I don't know anything about it, but man, that title. Yeah. yeah. This week we've been talking about Cria Cuervos uh, from 1976, directed by Carlos and Carlos Suara. Uh, directed by Carlos Suara. And yeah, next week it's uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Uh, directed by Brian Haskin, as if that's going to matter. <laughs> I mean, I'm so excited. The other I thing can't of, even describe yeah. to you. The other thing about the mid-century horror films that... Uh, that Criterion shows us is that the guy who directed it is almost uh, an afterthought. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, um, that'll be that'll be definitely an interesting tra- change of pace from one of the saddest movies we've watched in a while. Yeah. So, this. I mean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Uh, some sort of space adventure thing, no doubt. I mean, I'm looking at the cover. I'm pretty excited. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it is a classic sci like this era sci fi movie cover. It's everything. I'm very excited. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Uh so yeah. Thanks for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm as always Liam Glass. With me as always John Patrick Otari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time.
You've been listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Obatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Haight does the music. Check him out at JonathanHaight.Bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or support us on Patreon. That's Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. We'd appreciate it.